0: This is Where We Live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last summer, California became the first state to condemn unnecessary surgeries on intersex children. This year, there's a bill before the Connecticut General Assembly to ban these surgeries in our state until children are old enough to consent to them. You might be wondering, what is intersex? We had a lot of questions, too, so we're focusing our show on this population today. Coming up, we're going to learn more about that Connecticut legislation, specifically why one portion of the bill has highlighted divisions between the medical and intersex communities. But first, we wanted to talk with people in the intersex community. So joining us uh, first is Kimberly Zieselman, Executive Director of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth, also an intersex woman. Kimberly, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great to be here. And then in studio with me is Bonnie Scranton. She's a West Hartford resident, and she's the mother of an adult daughter who identifies as intersex. Bonnie, welcome to our studio. Thank you so much for having me. So I'll start with Kimberly, because uh, you are part of this advocacy group, the executive director of Interact. What does it mean when we say intersex? So intersex refers to
2: people born with sex characteristics that don't fit the typical binary notions of either male or or female bodies. So, those physical variations can include things like chromosomes, internal organs, andor genitals. And doctors often refer to these as disorders of sex development or DSD. But most commonly in the community, we prefer the term intersex, as disorder can be very pathologizing. <laughs>
0: And you mentioned, um, so there's uh, the different terminology. So over the years, can you talk about how this classification of intersex conditions, even the terminology has evolved, and what led to that, Kimberly? Sure. So,
2: um, you know, intersex people have been around forever, and for about the last three decades, at least here in the United States, intersex people have been speaking out about the concern around the harms that have been done to them as usually as children um getting you know medical intervention that they didn't consent to and didn't need because they were otherwise healthy and in the past people refer to themselves the intersex people refer to themselves as intersex and then around 2007 Um, doctors got together particularly those with a special interest in this kind of medicine mostly pediatric urologists and endocrinologists and came up with something that they can that they refer to as a consensus statement for management of children with uh, dsd and they term they coined the term disorder of sex development at that point Um, many in the intersex community we're not happy with that term because it was so pathologizing and sort of p- firmly planted us, at least um, in that, you know, world of medicine where we don't think we belong. We belong. We believe that, you know, the fact that one to two percent of the population is born with intersex traits, which is similar to the number of people born with red hair or green eyes, is it's just a natural variation of... Right. And so unless there's something medically necessary, of course, then medical intervention should happen. But otherwise, intersex people don't need to be fixed. They're perfect just as they are.
0: So from your definition earlier, uh, people born uh, intersex have anatomy that's not considered typically male or female. Uh, When people hear the term intersex, uh, does the general public often confuse that with meaning transgender and explain the differences, Kimberly?
2: That is a common conflation um, that happens, understandably. Intersex is different from transgender in that transgender people are born with bodies that do fit the typical notions of either a male body or a female body, but their gender identity doesn't match that body. Whereas intersex people are not born with bodies that medicine or society typically describes as all male or all female. And so that is the main difference. Intersex people can have any gender identity or sexual orientation for that matter. Um, That's just like the rest of the population. But the issue we're talking about is an issue of bodily diversity.
0: At the same time, for those who are born intersex, they may still identify as either male or female, and then others will say they're somewhere in between. So can you describe for our listeners, again, uh, who may not have ever come across this term, this is the first time they're hearing about the intersex community, why is it not as simple as checking one box? It's not as
2: simple as checking one box um, because, you know, nature it's just not that simple, right? Things aren't that black and white, although it's what we have all been taught over the years. We are now finding that um, bodies are born with a lot of diversity, just like people's sexual orientations and gender identities can develop with a lot of diversity. So it just it just isn't that simple. Um, I will say, though, that most People who are born with variations of sex characteristics, which is another way of describing intersex, people that are born with variations of sex characteristics or, or intersex, most often their gender identity is either male or female. But their bodies are born intersex. Their bodies are um, not exactly what people would expect a male or female body to be.
0: Uh, to walk us through a little more of the different variations, uh Uh, I understand that some intersex people have ambiguous genitalia or internal sex organs, um, such Mm -hmm. as a person born with both ovarian and testicular tissues. Other intersex people have a combination of chromosomes that are different from the typical XY male, XX female, such as XXY. So they may be born, they look totally male or female, but their internal organs or hormones don't fit that definition. Is that all correct, Kimberly? Kimberly? Th- that is correct. I mean, people people, people
2: are born with uh, a variety of sex characteristics. I mean, all people, not just intersex people, everyone is born, for example, with genitals, and they, none of them look exactly like one another, right? There's variation in all, of human, all human bodies, and intersex people are just uh, another example of that. Um, intersex is really referring to someone who's born with a uh, variation of uh, sex traits, Either one or more of the things that you described, so it can be a mixture of chromosomes and internal reproductive organs, for example, or genitals. Or so it can be one or more. So it's a very diverse, broad umbrella term describing people born with diverse sex traits. And none of uh, no one intersex trait or experience is exactly the same as the other. However, there are commonalities, and the biggest thing that intersex people have in common is the issue of being harmed by medicine simply because of the way their body is born. I mean, that is the biggest issue really we're here to talk about. Despite what the intersex variation is or what the the medical DSD condition is, people, mostly children, are receiving um, medical intervention and often surgeries that they didn't consent to and more mm-hmm. importantly that they don't need they're not medically necessary and that's why interact and intersects the intersex community globally around the world has been speaking out now for mm-hmm. decades to try to end these harmful practices We're not anti surgery or anti-medical intervention, but we're pro-consent, and that's what this issue is really about.
0: So, Kimberly, we'll be talking more about that coming up on the show. I know you'll be uh, with us uh, when we have that conversation. Uh, This is where we live. Uh, uh, Joining us via Skype is Kimberly Zieselman, who is the Executive Director of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. We're learning today about the intersex community, and joining us in studio uh, for a different perspective is the parent of an intersex child, Bonnie. Scranton. Uh, Bonnie, welcome to our show again. Thank you. So tell us, um, I know your daughter wanted to be here with us. She's a, a college student. She considers herself to be an intersex woman.
3: So when did you find out that uh, that uh, she was born this way? Uh, well, thank you for having me. this is um this is my really my first time to speak publicly about this, and I have my daughter's um, consent and also encouragement. So that's really um fortifying. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think visibility and education is really uh, my main goal here. So mm-hmm. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, so our our journey here um, really was as a family, and we the process of learning her diagnosis was really um, it was really a process. Um, So she was born, she was a girl baby, um, nothing seemed you know unusual or unexpected about that. Um, And then when she was about two and a half years old um, I was giving her a bath and I stood her up in the tub and there was a very large noticeable bulge sort of in her labia which you know looked I was on it was unexpected and it was concerning to me. I laid her down to put her diaper on and that bulge disappeared. Um, And so I took her to the doctor. The doctor was really confused and had no idea what was going on. Um, So I don't even remember all the steps there, but we ended up with a general surgeon um, who diagnosed her with a hernia. And two years old? Two and a half, yep. And this is a pretty common story for girls. Um, Ultimately, my daughter's condition is called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is one of the diagnoses under that umbrella that Kimberly was just describing. so, and you know, there are so many others, but this is our particular story. Um, so the surgeon um, basically um, just told us that you know that these were completely healthy ovaries that were herniating down through the inguinal canal, and that he just needed to stitch up the muscle wall. Um, he put them back in, and um, I remember really distinctly in the waiting room as sort of a very worried mother of our first mm-hmm. you know toddler. Um, I thought, you know, gee, this is sort of what a testicle would do, isn't it? You know, this is the path that, you know, when baby boys, their testicles drop, this is exactly the path that they take. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. You'll have, you know, you'll have tons of grandchildren. And I said, okay, I'm just being a nervous mom you know, and then I sort of put it out of my head for about 10 years. Until she <laughs> um, was supposed to be going
0: through puberty. What Exactly,
3: happened? exactly. And she, you know, she was slowly approaching and going through puberty. Um, but what we noticed was when she was um, 13, almost 14, that she hadn't started a menstrual period yet. Um, and she wasn't growing any of those sort of secondary sex characteristics, you know, underarm hair and things like that. Um, so at her you know, well child visit, I just mentioned it, and our nurse practitioner actually said, you know, maybe we should go for some imaging, and I didn't think much of it. Um, I actually knew, as a as a sexual health educator and as um, a clinical social worker, I had encountered um, this concept before, but it wasn't really anything that I had any expertise in. Um, so I started to sort of do a little bit of research on my own, and then Uh, Once the imaging came back, uh, I remember we were sitting there and the the ultrasound techs, you know, were asking her, could you please fill your bladder? Could you please empty it, fill it, empty it? And I thought, you know, what in the world is going on here? Um, Turns out they didn't see a uterus on the ultrasound, um, which I found out about a week later um, while I was at work over the phone, which, you know, wasn't ideal. Um, and i'm I'm kind of including these details because of what Kimberly's been talking about in terms of the the interface with families and the medical community. And um I just I really am excited to help the medical community and the the therapy community you know, help these families and have these interactions go a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, so biologically, mm-hmm. um, so even though you when she was
0: born and you thought, well, this is a typical girl mm-hmm. baby, when you got the diagnosis, again, you mentioned complete androgen insensitivity mm-hmm. syndrome. Mm-hmm. So tell us what the doctor said about
3: um, exactly um, what your daughter, you know, right. the condition that she had right. So um, so what I learned, and you know, I honestly learned most of this through um, the support community that I quickly discovered, thanks to the internet, one of the sort of best things about the internet for us. Um, complete androgen insensitivity um, is basically a condition where, um, the, the child would have chromosomes which are XY, which are typically, ex- we expect, uh, for a boy. Um, and in this case, um, the, the body of that child is producing sufficient testosterone, sufficient dihydrotestosterone, those are androgens, which create sort of the whole pathway to become what we would expect as a typical boy. Um, and children with complete AIS, um, or even partial AIS, which I think we'll be talking about in a little bit, um, in the case of complete AIS, the androgens are, are pumping through the body, but the receptor sites for those androgens aren't working for a variety of reasons. So, so the body is pumping out all this androgen, but basically nobody's home to hear that signal. So what the body ends up doing, which is very interesting to me, um, it's a process called aromatization, where that t- testosterone, those androgens, are converted to estrogens. So the body has the external genitalia and the external body has a, quote unquote, feminizing effect. Although internally, the child, because of those XY genes and because of some of the genes on the Y chromosome, namely the SRY gene, uh, creates uh, those internal gonads and are not ovaries as they would be in an XX baby, but they're actually testes. So those also produce a whole pathway where um, there's no uterine development. Um, so, how yeah. did your
0: you and your uh, your husband uh, react,
3: and how did you tell your daughter? That's really a good question. Um, we took about two or three weeks before we shared everything with her. Um, we kind of had to stave her off because she's very curious and very smart, and was you know very um, interested to find out you know why all these doctors' appointments, why all these blood tests, and um, so we took about two or three weeks to really understand. Um, this condition. And um, there were a couple other imaging things that got ordered. But I think my husband wrote a really lovely letter to her, which we ended up reading to her. Uh, We farmed out our other two kids to grandparents, and we just had a one-on-one with her. And um, his basic thesis for that letter was that there are multiple pathways to becoming a girl. Um, And that, you know, this was not um, a progressive condition. It's it is what it is it's you know it's she's not sick um and that we love her and that you know we'll continue to support her um in the interim we did share with our closest family members um our siblings her her grandparents our parents and we let her know that all of those people already knew and that was kind of an interesting discussion because she was 14 at the time so you know and this is a sensitive topic so we wanted to make sure that there was sort of a balance of, you know, keeping things private enough, but letting her know that there was nothing to be ashamed of and that we love her. As far as
0: uh, what was going on with your daughter internally, is it common for doctors to recommend that uh, the testes be removed? And what what path did you take?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question too. Um, so we're kind of in this, um, I think we're finding ourselves in this time of transition. Um, the, you know, quote, unquote, best practices used to be um, that any of those gonads um, should be removed immediately um, because there was thought to be a high cancer risk. Um, And of course, as a parent, when you hear a physician telling you that your child may develop cancer, you want to do everything you can to prevent that. Um, But what we decided to do was um, wait because we also knew that the cancer risk doesn't really seem to go up until after puberty. Um, So the timing was perfect. We were able to wait Um, And in the process, uh, medicine has kind of caught up with um, caught up with reality, I think, in the sense that the cancer risk for for girls and women with this particular condition are really only about 1 and 2 percent. The risk does climb somewhat um, after age of 25, but it's still quite low and it's still the kind of cancer that these women may get is very manageable. Um, So we just, we monitor her uh, once or twice a year and The surveillance of those um, testes is not perfect. Um, So I wish there were a better um, test right now, but there isn't. But we've really basically given her the choice um, to leave them in. Um, They've really done well by her. She's developed beautifully, um, and she feels like herself. And um, if she had them removed, she would have to have hormone replacement therapy for the rest of her life. So that's... That's a cost-benefit that we decided to let her decide about. Uh, Bonnie Scranton is with us here on Where We Live.
0: She's a mother of an adult daughter who identifies as intersex. Uh, Joining us via Skype or has been with us via Skype is Kimberly Zieselman, who's Executive Director of Interact, uh, Advocates for Intersex Youth. At the beginning of the show, Kimberly, I mentioned you are also an intersex woman. You have the same condition as Bonnie's daughter. But walk us through Uh, We don't have too much time. But briefly, your situation, how you found out, was very different.
2: It was. um, So I'm obviously quite a bit older than Bonnie's daughter. And when I was diagnosed um, at around the same age, I was 15. um, The doctors didn't tell even my parents the true nature of my diagnosis, which was complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, that I had XY chromosomes and in fact, testes and not ovaries or uterus inside my body. And they were told that Um, I had undeveloped, and therefore I was told, I had underdeveloped uh, female reproductive organs and they needed to be taken out immediately. So there was a sort of rush to surgery um, as soon as the school year ended, and I had what I thought was a partial hysterectomy or or a hysterectomy. And and then I went on hormone replacement therapy um, at age 15 and have been on it for the rest of my life. I'm 52 now. And I didn't find out the true... Facts about my own body or what had happened to me until 41. So, over a decade ago, I found out by obtaining my medical records and seeing, um, in fact, that I had XY chromosomes and androgen sensitivity syndrome and that it had been hidden from me, which was the model. Back then, and Kimberly, when you say
0: back then, are you talking about is it early '80s when you had this surgery? I'm talking about the early,
2: exactly, good
0: math. I'm talking about the early '80s, um, and that
2: really was prominent up until I would say, well into the 2000s. Um, I and mean, this con- concealment model was what the standard of care was back then, and it was thought, you know, geez. This, in my case, with my particularly intersex trait, I identified as female. I, I appeared female, and so there was this, I think, intent not to rock the boat and not to um, upset me, basically. And, of course, this was before the Internet. Um, Bonnie's daughter, you know, at, age, at the same age, was, was in a very different time. With a lot of information available to her through the internet. And so I think that's had a lot to do with it. But I think what's so, I think one of the good things here is to say that some things are improving and that has improved. And I'm really heartened when I hear stories like Bonnie's um, and her daughters because it shows that medicine in some cases is starting to change and they're listening and they're starting to take more of a wait and see approach and listen to patients and. Um, that's really the most important thing. However, however, I think it's really important to say that still currently today with this intersex trait, healthy gonads are still being removed unnecessarily and, and causing harm. Um, and the harm is um, besides all the interventions that a child goes through and all the negative impacts of that, of being in the doctor's office and and being made to feel like your body's not good enough. When you actually lose your um, gonads and your healthy gonads that were producing hormones that you needed, as, as Bonnie explained, in my body too, they were converting that to testosterone that I wasn't uh, responding to into estrogen, which my body, body um, definitely needed. And that was taken away from me. And, you know, I am so happy that that wasn't the case for Ellie and that it's starting to, in some cases, um, not be the case for, for other kids. But, you know, it was just a couple of weeks ago I spoke to a parent who um, now with fetal genetic testing becoming more common, we're starting to hear from parents like this person who upon a prenatal um, uh, diagnosis of CAIS just like Ellie and I, um, they actually provided the um, parents with the option to terminate the pregnancy and didn't provide them with information and resources to reach out to the intersex community or to other parents. Um, or, so, you know, the fact that that is still happening today, I think, underscores
0: how far we have to go -hmm. still. Again, uh, Kimberly Zieselman is Executive Director of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. She's going to stay with us as we continue our show. We're going to have a medical doctor joining us. Uh, But before we go, I wanted to thank Bonnie Stratton for Mm -hmm. coming in and just telling us a a, a little bit about your story. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you uh, like to, you know, I understand you counsel intersex children and their families Mm -hmm. by working with Connecticut Children's Medical Center. What guidance do you have for families as they interact? With the medical community, mm.
3: the first thing I want to make sure to say um, as a parent is that reaching out to other parents for me and for our family was the single most important game changer in this whole situation. Um, the fact that my daughter has has peers with her same condition, the fact that I have friends who have kids who have intersex traits, um, because this is a very lonely road. It's very isolating. It's not something that. You know, there are a lot of, um, you know, road races or bake sales or, or ribbon campaigns for um, it's very lonely. And the fact that um, we can connect with each other is important. So the androgen insensitivity support group, I think, was the, the main thing. Um, and just a plug there at www.aisdsd.org. Um, I think in terms of the medical community, um, just educating yourself and feeling free to ask as many questions Um, until you understand this is very, very complicated biological um, information. And um, I think my role, uh, my, my, my mission really is to help parents adjust because what we know is that a parental, psychological, and emotional adjustment to these diagnoses is directly correlated to how well their kids do. Um, so I just want to embrace them, educate them, support them, and really let them know that you know this is this is a difficult, unexpected road, but it's by no means. Um dangerous or scary. Yeah. It's, it's actually been quite an adventure.
0: Well, thank you, Bonnie. Uh, I'm sorry that we're, we're running out That's of time, okay. but we appreciate you coming in. Uh, Bonnie Scranton, uh, this you. is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear more about this bill before Connecticut lawmakers. We're also going to hear uh, a perspective from a doctor, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mm. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Being intersex varies from person to person. Intersex individuals are born with internal and or external traits that don't fit the definition of being male or female. There are instances when doctors will recommend surgery, including when a serious health issue can arise. But intersex advocates say surgeries are performed on intersex infants and children to normalize their bodies. Now, State Senator Matthew Lesser has proposed a bill to protect the rights of intersex residents by calling for a ban on medically unnecessary surgeries. Doctors say banning certain medical procedures is problematic. To get that perspective, joining us uh, via a studio at Yale University, Dr. Adam Hittleman, pediatric urologist at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Dr. Hittleman, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So I, I watched uh, a lot of that uh, testimony before the legislature's public health committee. I know you testified. Uh, and uh, you pretty much said that what's medically necessary surgery is a complicated issue. It also depends on how uh, intersex is defined. Can you give us some examples of, of an intersex individual that you would see where you'd recommend that surgery uh, needs to happen?
1: Yeah, I, I think, as, as uh, yeah, no, you said, you saw the testimony. Part of the complication here, what makes it so difficult for all of us is the definitions that we use. And I think the term "intersex" is kind of an umbrella term, catch-all term that really includes many different individuals. It doesn't take an individualistic approach. I think one of the things that we're really pushing towards because I think it makes it very complicated – and even I'm kind of, as you can see, I'm not giving you a black and white answer, which I know you're asking for, is it's not so simple to say that every individual needs surgery or that we're advocating for surgery in every case. I think there are, to give you a more concrete example, there are some patients, and the most common patient we see that we would define as intersex, would be children with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia is a problem with the adrenal gland where there's difficulty in making steroids, and the steroids are getting shunted to testosterone. And girls with uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia are making too much testosterone that virilizes their external genitalia. And that causes the urethra, the tube that we pee through, and the vagina to fuse together and come out as as a single opening. So in, in some cases, many cases, this can put the children at risk for having difficulty urinating or urine getting trapped in the vagina. Um, later in life, there can be some issues with menstruation, but we're, I, th- I think you are more focusing on our earlier surgery. Um, but the goal of this surgery would be to separate the urethra and the mm-hmm. vagina to make it... Uh, less complicated, easier for the child to urinate without risk of urine collecting inside the vagina.
0: Dr. Hittleman, uh, this condition that you describe, it sounds like that wouldn't fall under this uh, bill that's been raised where they're calling for medically unnecessary surgery. So can you give us an example of, again, I know that you and and many other doctors that practice in Connecticut that work with uh, these children have a problem with this blanket ban. So tell us why.
1: So um, again, I think it depends on which bill we're, we're focused on. If you only want me to speak to the Connecticut bill, leaving all the other bills out there, and there's many states that have bills yes, pending. Yes, just the Connecticut okay. one. So I, I think it's just not a very clear bill. I don't think it's very specific. I, I think when you're when you're asking what the bill specifically designates as unnecessary surgery, I, I don't see it in the writing. And I, I think just like at the testimony which you heard. When Senator Lesser turned to the family and said, thank you for presenting, you gave a very impassioned argument, this wouldn't affect you, the bill would have affected that family, it would have changed the surgery that that child had. So I think that comment wasn't completely accurate or sincere. I'm not sure which it was, but it's not true that it's so simple that every surgery is necessary or unnecessary. The bill does not specifically say that we can't do clitoroplasty, which I think is part in that surgery. Um, it just says that we can't do medically unnecessary surgery. And I, and I think unless you were to say to me what you define as medically unnecessary, it's difficult for me to give you an answer of what is medically necessary.
0: So what do you define as medically unnecessary related to the intersex population?
1: I think so, uh, medically unnecessary as an infant or medically necessary later in life.
0: Uh, as an infant.
1: So, you know, I, I think that's a difficult question because there's many different surgeries and there's many different um, many different presentations of, of of the intersex population, and I, I think it depends on how we extend it. One of the things I was being pushed on during that interview or during that legislation was uh, was clitorectomy, and I would say cl- clitorectomy, the actual removal of the clitoris, is medically unnecessary. It's not a practice that is maintained. I think it was a historical error, um, but I think it was something that people did because That was the surgery as they understood it. And while intentions can be good, outcomes can be bad. Um, But I would say when pushed on that question, I would say clitorectomy is not something that we would recommend or do. And it's a historical remnant of a surgery that we don't do anymore.
0: Uh, with us also uh, is Kimberly Zieselman, who uh, you know is executive director of, the, of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. Kimberly is also an intersex woman. Uh, Kimberly, uh, how do you respond to Dr. Hittleman and the points he raises about why there should not be a ban on or trying to legislate what is medically unnecessary? Hi. Well, I
2: think you know it would be nice if there didn't if there didn't have to be a legislative ban if there didn't have to be intervention by the government, but unfortunately, despite decades of intersex people speaking out and many people, including folks at interact over the last 10 years, trying to work with doctors at various institutions and medical associations, giving them real data around the harms that are happening and the real lived experience of intersex people like myself. Unfortunately, these surgeries, although there have been some improvements in care, I will acknowledge, The harms continue and many of these surgeries continue across the country. Um, Specifically, if we're talking about uh, uh, children born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, I think those are, as the doctor mentioned, Dr. Holman mentioned, um, one of the more common um, intersex traits or intersex conditions, if you will. And in those cases, I mean, myself as executive director of Interact, Interact, and I think most, if not all, uh, intersex advocates I work with around the globe would not be opposed to any of the surgeries that are medically necessary. It, um, example, for example, to allow the flow of urine or to the flow of blood um, for menstruation when a child is, you know, at the age where puberty is imminent. Um, however, I don't think any of those surgeries are necessary um, on a baby. And particularly uh, clitoral reductions, you know, clitoral recessions or reductions, which are still happening Um, all around the country. I'm not sure about Dr. Hillman's practice. I can't speak to that, but I do know they're happening all around the country. And what we're hearing from families and from patients is that they're going in for some of these other surgeries sometimes, which arguably may be more necessary, medically necessary. But at that point, they're also um, altering the size of the clitoris purely for cosmetic reasons. So that is obviously one example of something that we don't think should be Touched, we don't think should be happening because of the harm and I want to be really clear that interact um, myself and in the intersex community if I may speak for them we're not anti-medicine or anti-doctor what we're, we're anti-choice and this is an issue of taking the choice away from the pa- patient and I think pediatric surgeons in particular seem to forget that parents are not the patients in these situations the children, the babies are the
0: patients. So I wanted to get Dr. Hittleman to respond to that point you just made, because I, I know during your testimony, Dr. Hittleman, uh, you said you do believe in parental autonomy. Uh, obviously, Kimberly, Kimberly thinks that the patient, the child, should be the one that decides when they are old enough to consent. So how do you how do you respond to, to their concerns and their point?
1: And I think it's a very reasonable concern. And I think she did make one statement, though, about, and, and she'll have to Uh, The defender acknowledged herself, but she said that they do support um, moving the urethra for urination as an adolescent. And and I'm not sure if that was intentional, but I noticed that she said that. And I think another key thing to think about is how we classify intersex. And if you took the congenital adrenal hyperplasia population, and they're a very large uh, support network called CARES. And and ideally, we have someone from CARES participate in this as well. They would say that they don't consider themselves intersex. They consider their children to have an adrenal problem, and that adrenal problem is has, has causing uh, endocrine or hormone problems, and that's affecting the genitalia. So they're you know healthy, fertile, you know beautiful girls, just like all the other intersex patients, who have this genitalia um, that's being impacted by their genes or hormones, but they don't consider themselves. Intersex, so it makes it a little bit complicated for us to say that we're representing the entire intersex community when this largest component doesn't feel like they're being represented by their own advocates. So I'm not sure it's that simple to say that one surgery is necessary or not. And for from, from me to tell a parent that, and I agree, there is some aspects of parental autonomy, and there's definitely some individual aspects of, of each patient. And I do think that there's a lot of aspects that are important about allowing uh, patients to have their own autonomy. We have to protect our patients. And, and I've worked at CCMC and I, and I heard um, Bonnie Scranton's uh, testimony and I agree with a lot of things that she says as well. I, I think there are some things that we can, you know, manage conservatively and try to, uh, you know, wait. And we try not to tell parents they should or shouldn't do surgery. We just try to inform parents and educate them. I don't think it's a one size fits all like this legislation is and say that everyone needs surgery, everyone doesn't need surgery. We're not advocating for surgery. We're advocating for education. That's why, in a lot of institutions, our multidisciplinary groups have developed so we can bring in multiple different facets of the angle to look at different management strategies and different um, folks that can help educate the families. They can bring in physicians that work on the hormones, the endocrine endocrinologists. We have the urologists. A lot of folks will have gynecologists. There's therapists, social workers. I mean, I think there's a lot of different perspectives that need to be addressed.
0: Dr. And, Dr. Hittleman, I want to yeah. take a, a quick call. Uh, this is where we live. We're learning more about the intersex community today on the show. Um, my guest, Dr. Adam Hittleman, pediatric urologist at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Also via Skype, Kimberly Zieselman, who is executive director of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. Eileen is calling from Westchester. Eileen, what's your question or comment?
4: Hi, uh, my name is Eileen Wong. Um, I am a urologist. Um, I became very close to being a pediatric urologist. I have presented at the Society of Pediatric Urology um, and the American Association of Pediatrics. And I think that my concern is this this idea that people with CAH or, com, or uh, congenital, uh, adrenal hyperplasia are not, uh, do not consider themselves intersex. Again, that is a blanket term. I know many um, women uh, with, and men with CAH who consider themselves intersex and who are the most vocal because they have possibly been the most harmed by the surgeries um, in the past and in the present, which has, have led to scarring, a chronic pain, um, even inability to have intercourse and the need to have chronic vaginal dilations. And I think that one thing that hasn't been addressed with the CAH population is that there are studies showing up to one in eight people with CAH. Um, identify, do not identify as female. And so how can a a, a parent, and number one, are in your consent process, do you discuss this idea of gender discordance in the CH population with your parents? And number two, how can a parent make a decision for their child when they don't know what their gender will
0: be? Mm. Those are both uh, good points. Uh, so I'll, I'll, take, I'll uh, take your question and comments to Dr. Adam Hittleman. How do you respond, Dr. Hittleman?
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've, Dr. Wong wrote a letter to the um, the assembly on the the last bill, and she's been pretty vocal. She's actually come to Yale and spoken, and and I think everyone has their right to their own opinions. I think, unfortunately, that often uh, the statistics that we quote are not always accurate. Unfortunately, sometimes they'll come from a mixed population, and, and it's hard to collect data that doesn't have some bias to it. And I think some of the statistics are questioned, and actually in the letter that she wrote to the state of Connecticut, assembly to the physicians that she quoted actually wrote letters opposing what she said because they felt that she was misrepresenting what they were saying. Um, So I think it's very complicated. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I just think that as we interpret data, it can be very complicated, especially as we manipulate it to our own perspective. So I think it's pretty clear, and unfortunately we don't have someone from CARES here to represent them, that the CARES, which is a large international uh, group, really does not support this. And they've written letters and they've been very vocal that they don't support these different propositions. And I think the slippery slope is actually how the propositions are being presented. Because right now we're talking about the Connecticut legislative um, uh, introduction that – as it has come up in other states, and I know we're focusing on Connecticut here, but the, the conversation goes beyond that. It really doesn't just stay with this medically unnecessary surgery. It doesn't just stay with overturning we intersex. It actually quickly expands. Give us some so, examples,
0: Dr. Hittleman, these other states you mentioned.
1: So currently in California, um, their Proposition 301 includes hypospadias. These are boys with a basically an arrest and development, a developmental problem with their urethra, their penis, it's called hypospadias. They are fertile boys, and there's, they're not included in the intersex community, but, the sur- but their bill would uh, would um, prohibit even surgery on hypospadias. And some of the ethical arguments would be how we uh, are intervening on children before they have the opportunity to assent. And I think that's very important. I, I recognize that. But there's also the um, question of, of what surgeries – are medically necessary and medically unnecessary. And as we expand the surgeries and we expand the definition of intersex to include many things, at some point we have to decide what, what are we really um, protecting the patient from, so to speak. I, I, I agree. There's a lot of that we have to put weight on protecting our patients and the autonomy. And the parents obviously are acting out of love. They're not acting out of what they want or what they want their child to be. Of course, everyone wants their child to be healthy, but they're trying to take the information and make the best decision in the interest of their, their children. And we as physicians and other members of our multidisciplinary committees, our job is not to tell them to do surgery, not to do surgery, but to provide them information. And by limiting the parents' rights to manage their children or make life decisions for their children is also saying that we're making a passive decision that can happen later on and there's no impact. Not intervening is an active decision. There are ramifications of not intervening as well. So this assumption that just we should wait until a child is of of some age that they can assent to something, then at what age that is, that's very difficult to interpret. And what they're assent to is based on our interpretation of of what the concern is. And it's not always mm-hmm. about gender or gender uh, dysphoria. There's a lot of things that go into this. Hypospadias, the example I'm giving is not involved in this conversation, yet it's involved, it's, it's introduced mm-hmm. in the bill. So I think it's very complicated.
0: So, uh, Dr. Hittleman, thank you uh, for that. We're almost out of time, so I wanted to go back to Kimberly Zieselman, again, Executive Director of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth. Uh, the whole point of us doing this show is pegged to this bill before the Connecticut uh, General Assembly again. Uh, it has three um, points. One of them would be to uh, ban medically unnecessary surgery. That's been the focus of this segment. Uh, how can uh, both the intersex community and the medical community is there a way to move forward to find a compromise is this bill um, asking too much at this point
2: Sure well I always think there's a way to move forward and, and collaborate and compromise first of all second of all I wanted to state that interact and myself were not behind the filing of this bill um, and so we did not partake in the uh, directly really in the drafting of the language. This bill was filed as a very broad statement. And as I understand it, what is going to happen is that if the committee decides to uh, vote on the bill, they're forced going to go through a redrafting stage, an actual drafting stage, and put in more specifics. So I understand why Dr. Hillman and others are responding to the very general nature of this bill, because unlike some other states that we are working in, California, for example, it is very, very general. Um, But having said that, I also, and and so there will be a process um, moving forward, I want to say, though, respond to the hypospadias comments. I think, um, you know, that is not an intersex trait I have, but I do know many, many uh, people with hypospadias who have had medical interventions that they wish hadn't happened. And I, number one, think that they do fall under the definition of intersex by, you know, the way that I define it and the way that the United Nations defines it and the way it's defined quite broadly. Um, as having a sex characteristic that doesn't, you know, isn't what you typically see on a um, male or female body. Um, but it, it also is um, important to realize that the harms are real for these kids and these kids that grow up and as adults share their narratives about their harms, including hypo Kids with hypospadias who very often go through multiple surgeries, and with surgeries, there is scarring and loss of sensation and pain. And there are some real um, reasons to be considering hypospadias as something that needs to be delayed and really considered. The last thing I
0: want to say is that. Quickly, Kimberly. <laughs>
2: We are not talking just about banning all surgeries outright. We're talking about delaying medically unnecessary surgeries until a child can meaningfully participate in that decision.
0: Kimberly uh, Zieselman, again, is executive director of Interact, which is an advocacy group for intersex youth. Kimberly, we want you to stick around, but I do want to thank uh, Dr. Adam Hittleman for joining us uh, to give his perspective. Pediatric urologist at Yale School of Medicine, Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Hittleman, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathancho. We're going to continue uh, talking about the intersex community. And if you have a question, find us on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopith Today we've been talking about the intersex community, uh, trying to understand uh, better uh, individuals uh, that uh, may be your neighbor, your coworker, and who largely, uh, unless you know someone who's intersex, oftentimes they feel like they are invisible. Uh, Kimberly Zieselman is with us. She's Executive Director of Interact Advocates for Intersex Youth. Kimberly, we just have a few minutes left. I I wanted to ask you, because we've mentioned California now a few times, uh, tell us what's been going On in California. I know last summer uh, there was a resolution to uh, condemn, uh, again, medically unnecessary surgery on intersex youth. uh, But is this movement growing? Uh, We're seeing this bill here in Connecticut. I'm just curious if California was the catalyst.
2: I think it was. I think it was. You're absolutely right. A resolution was passed by the state of California last year, really condemning these medically unnecessary harmful surgeries and celebrating intersex people that was a huge milestone in our country. I mean, currently I think it's important to know there's there's, personally no legislation or no law on the books that talks about intersex people specifically. So the fact that we are coming out of the shadows and no longer invisible is huge. And yes, the momentum in California continues. Um, Senator Weiner, who is the lead Senate sponsor, um, wanted to file a bill this year that would have a little bit more teeth and talk about delaying surgery, specifically articulating a number of the different um, conditions, intersex traits, and delaying surgery until children can make a meaningful decision for themselves. So we do think that there is momentum there in California. The, um, the ACLU, um, the LGBT orgs and human rights orgs and others are all behind it. feeling very positively about that and i do think it's been a catalyst for further legislation being filed in states such as connecticut and elsewhere Mm
0: Uh, just a couple of minutes left now, Kimberly, but uh, you know, again, uh, you're an intersex woman. Uh, what happened to you uh, just sounds terrible. The fact that you were kept from knowing that you were intersex, uh, the surgery that was uh, performed on you uh, not uh, uh, disclosed until you were an adult. Uh, as we, we move forward, how should mainstream be thinking about talking about uh, intersex individuals?
2: to just know that intersex, people that are born intersex are just another variation of nature, right? And so things are not as black and white as as we all think or we're all taught in high school biology. And once people understand that it's really not that big of a deal. And unless there's something um, medically um, harmful or life-threatening or making someone sick, we don't need to be fixed. We're just variations on nature. And if we as intersex people grow up at whatever age and can make a meaningful decision about our own bodies and decide that we want um, medical intervention in any form, then, then great, we should be able to do that. And I also want to say that the intersex community really needs compassionate, competent care for adults. The intersex, the medical profession has, you know... They're diving in and they're trying to fix quote unquote intersex kids and kind of fit them into these binary boxes of of male and female bodies. But then when we grow up and we become adults, we have nowhere to go. There's no specialty, no competent care, either mental health care or Physical care for things like hormone replacement therapy and um, and even surgeries if needed.
0: That's a that's an important point. Unfortunately, we ran out we ran out of time. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpatanchil. Today's show produced by Scott Breedy. A special thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf, and Lydia Brown was on the phones. Uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about Alzheimer's research. Again, this is something that impacts uh, many of families across our country. I'm Lucy Alpatanchil. As always, thanks for listening.